You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. This is episode number 197. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today we're talking about it's no jersey on home grows. Vicente Fox is franchising paradise. Oklahoma has a growing problem. Cannabis and its epic carbon footprint. Bad cop in California. A very blunt Louisiana state Senate candidate. And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. And I, there we go. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She's a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. Nicole, what is your headline today? Well, happy hump day, everybody. Um, I'm coming to you guys with a headline out of Oklahoma. I feel like I've been reporting on them a lot lately, but this is going to come as no surprise to everybody. Well, the article comes from KFOR.com, Oklahoma City, and it is processors in Oklahoma are failing inspections, but Is this really the processor's fault? Hmm, let's see a little bit further. In Oklahoma City, some Oklahoman Oklahoman marijuana processors are expressing concern that the state's cannabis supply chain is just not up to par. One processor said a few months ago that 90% of their product was failing inspection. 1440 Processing explains that a lot of marijuana is coming to them from growers that fail to meet industry standards due to high level of pesticides, heavy metals, or other dangerous chemicals. Last year, they said 90% of the cannabis that they brought to the labs failed the test. They report spending tens of thousands of dollars testing product on their own dime to ensure the quality. Every single full panel test, depending on your labs, are anywhere between $200 and $500, said senior analyst Dylan Stevens. So it starts to add up quite a bit. If we're having every 50 pounds tested, we can run a couple of thousand pounds a week It's in, in this building. It really adds up quick. To get their fail rate down, 1440 significantly limited the number of growers that they deal with. 
Out of the pool of over 8,000 growers in the state, it's maybe about 10% range that they're actually able to utilize and process the material from. This is something that I find of no surprise because the reality is uh, no matter how much you try to you know, polish the turd, garbage in, garbage out. And people are finding ways to refine product and make it into you know, their own distillate version of hot dog water that they could put into a vape pen. But in a lot of these situations, if you're not refining it down to pretty much nothing but the cannabinoid, which everybody, as we talk about pretty regularly, is not the ideal product, um, you're going to concentrate a lot of these problems that are happening at a lower level in the flower. I've had products as much as, uh, you know, flower test and pass no problem. But when you concentrate those products down, even the, uh, you know, certain levels of that were so minute that you wouldn't have seen it flower are now very visible and very test worthy in the concentrated product. So it sounds like less than 10% of the city or the state of Oklahoma's product is actually passing um, the inspections. So apparently there was a report for the OMA currently about 50 compliance inspectors, um, which are up from uh, just 16 in May of 2021. And they plan to get that number up to 90. And they admit only that half of the state's more than 12,000 marijuana businesses have actually been inspected. So there's a lot of people that are still under the impression that nobody's looking. But eventually, people will be looking. And I feel like people are going to have built a business on a financial model that's just obviously not sustainable. So this is super important that everyone's paying attention. And you know, be careful when you're out there in Oklahoma, because it sounds like a lot of that material, as we all know, is just straight boof. And I'm Nicole West, reporting for the State of Cannabis news and when we say no. I-F-I-O-E-A, we're only saying you're doing fine Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay. pull to refresh how okay oklahoma is doing i changed my profile picture N- nicole do we have any any idea what the percentage of uh trap weed is actually uh part of that uh, quantification that you're referring to? I mean, in real life, Jason, we don't actually have a quantification because nobody's talking about it. But it, as we look at it from the outside and knowing how much material had been pushed out to out to Oklahoma, um, I, you know, it, I'd say I'd say that there's a good chance that half of it would be, uh, at least from last year. But now the producers, are there's a lot of people growing now. There wasn't as much cultivation happening back then. So, uh, you know, trap out of Oklahoma, probably a decent amount, but that's it's supposed to be, you know, closing down here as as the compliance and regulations comes forward. But it seems like Oklahoma's, you know, a few years behind even in their run. I've never heard that song in my fucking life. <laughs> now you can't unhear it. <laughs> if there's anyone in the audience from Oklahoma, we'd love to hear from you. Where's Canapam? No comment on the booth, Jason. Did you see my? Did you pull to refresh and see the photo? Oh, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I, I refer to Oklahoma as Booflahoma. Is, is, is that time? <laughs> and the guy, the guy in the, the, the he was holding that, that booth right there, he was saying most of it's pretty good. It's like, what? This is good? This is your good stuff? Oh, my God. Susan, in, in that case, we would call him a booth spurt. Uh, you can't judge a book by its cover. Come on now. That must be what they're shipping over to Poor Sue Sicily in Arizona. E. Rico, you can judge cannabis by its. Cu- yes, you can. <laughs> Maybe. It- Did you see it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> <That's> Oklahoma. <trash. laughs> oh my God. That's, that's garbage. 
being as the state did push back so hard against metric, you know, it comes as no surprise to me that there's still a lot of product that we're not able to really make sense of right now. And, you know, I really, a metric annoys the fucking shit out of me, but without some sort of tracking system throughout the state, it will become, um, especially with the way that Oklahoma opened up their licensing, I, I think this will be continue to be a problem. Oklahoma doesn't have metric. I thought they did. They remember I reported on it over the summer. Um, they sued. There was a lawsuit saying that there was a, a monopoly. And so then they pushed back the rollout of metric. And it looks like in November, they um, talked about that they're going to be um, the new deadline. Oklahoma is extending the beginning inventory deadline for the state seed to sell tracking system as of November 19th, 2021. So um, the it is in, it is just not being required. And so there's some people that are trying to use it. Similarly, the way when California rolled out uh, metric, it, it was happening, but nobody was uh, using it. Um, and, and that's similar things that's happening in Oklahoma right now. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Because I know a, a licensed grower in Oklahoma and, and they were dealing with metric, but so all of that work was for nothing. Awesome. Okay. Well, up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline, Rico? Oh, yeah. So mine's coming out of Mexico News Daily. Ex-President Fox's chain of cannabis stores plans to open 130 more this year. Paradise's focus is on the growing market for CBD products in Mexico. So still riding high after fulfilling his, inf- uh, his infamous promise to former U.S. President Donald Trump that Mexico will not pay for his fucking wall. Former pre- uh, Mexican-, Mexican President Vicente Fox announced he'll be opening an additional 130 Paradise cannabis stores by the end of this year. He's currently part owner of 70 in 28 Mexican states, each selling CBD oil, hemp oil, bongs, pipes, grinders, and papers. Fox recently spoke with Mexican newspaper El Universal, stating the goal is to have 200 stores across all 32 Mexican states by the end of 2022. The first new store is set to open soon in San Luis Potosi City. Fox served as Mexico's president from 2000 to 2006 and has been an outspoken supporter of cannabis legalization, but isn't the only high-profile investor in paradise. Telenovela star Roberto Pelazuelos uh, is also a partner in the company, founded by businessmen Fernando Carcamo, uh, Fernando Espinabarros, and Guillermo Palau. Fox invited bold and dynamic entrepreneurs to consider opening Paradise franchises in a video on the Paradise website posted this weekend where he said, Paradise's idea is to share the business with many of you throughout the Mexican Republic, providing and granting franchises that you can have, you can operate in, in which you will have high returns for your investment. Fox also sits on the board of Canadian medical cannabis company uh, Chiron Life Sciences, which currently has operations in Colombia. Paradise is well uh, well positioned to dominate a burgeoning Mexican adult use market once legalized, which is expected to occur later this year. But operations chief Cesar Escalante says that their current focus is locked in on the growing Mexican appetite for CBD products, investing heavily on consumer education, uh, making sure folks are aware of the plant's medical benefits. Uh, Though I've been told by many of my own Mexican friends, Vicente Fox has been a polarizing figure, to say the least, publicly for a variety of reasons. He was beyond pleasant to uh, when my wife Jasmine and I met him and his wife, and we, uh, as we shared a table together uh, alongside Exhibit and Jim Belushi back in 2018, um, when we all earned High Time 100 Most Influential People honors that year. 
Fuck, that was four years ago now. Uh, well, Presidente Fox, congratulations on the early success of your cannabis endeavors, and I wish you the best of luck in executing those 130 this year. Um, I really don't know how the hell they're going to be able to pull it off, opening an average of 11 monthly uh, with less than 12 months left in, in 2022. But shit, if they can execute it, it's probably going to he's probably going to be a favorite for the biggest international industry newsmaker of the year. Uh, this is Rico Lamit, dopest dad north of the border, reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what the rest of y'all think about this one. Can they pull uh, it up? I just, I hate it when ex-politicians, I don't know, it's me. I just hate it when ex-politicians get into the business. Um, and yeah, I mean, how are they coming up with the funding for 200 <laughs> stores for CBD? They're selling papers and bongs. How, where's this money coming from? But you where's the, the money coming from? from? <laughs> yeah. Exactly it's the Mexican, he's a former president <laughs> of Mexico. The money is coming from the Mexican people. And all of, this corruption, all of this corruption, all of this corruption, Susan, it blows my I do mind. Not. These presidents that served in Mexico still have an accountability to the Mexican people who were massacred and murdered by this government. And Vicente Fox made promises that he didn't keep. Now he stands to profit significantly with operations in Canada and Colombia. Come on. We need to get our government leaders who have blood on their hands. He promised the people that he would hold government officials for human rights violations who made people disappear in Mexico. He made, he made them disappear. He said he would hold them accountable and he did none of the sort. And now he will stand to profit in this space where so many Mexicanos have suffered. I, I, Vicente Fox is not the worst of the worst. But there is so much more that needs to be brought to this conversation. But but he but he did uh, make sure that y'all didn't um, uh, that, that Mexico did not pay for the wall though. Well, well now Rico, um, in in with that, I think that the, these stores should be called the Fox in the Hen House. <laughs> Absolutely. And yes. speaking of the name, Jason, though, I, that, that's one thing I love about this story is it's called Paradise. I love that Paradise. Yes. Please, and thank you. I've always said somebody needs to name a strain. Would you like some happiness? Fuck yeah, I do. You know, uh, love the name. Anyway, we've got three folks up from the audience, Chemo, Todd, then Greg. Yeah, no, I was at the High Times 100 as well, and I met him. He was definitely very charismatic. But um, I think people forget that he was recorded on wiretap taking something, I believe, was like $60 million straight from Chapo. So, yeah, it's definitely where all the money's coming from. I think I think to operate like that in the Mexican uh, market, you, you gotta be you gotta be in with the cartel. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh yeah, I'll go kill you. Like, to be a government official yeah. in Mexico, you mean? To be yeah. a government official in Mexico, you have to be part of the cartel. You're working with them for sure, and that's why there needs to be a total accountability. I know it's laughable for some, and while jokes are, you know, cute but maybe inappropriate. Uh, this is a very real issue. And when we're talking about social equity and indigenous rights in America, Mexicanos are indigenous people. And I'm, I will not let this go. Let's hear from Todd and then Greg, and then we need to move on. Great. Thanks, Susan. I was going to mention, uh, we're not really concerned about Vicente up here. First of all, paradise.com. And I'm not trying, I'm not promoting anything here. Just wanted to say, um, I'm offering the, the only we that's going to be allowed at paradise.com, which is a new metaverse, by the way, is uh, is coming from marijuana market. So he can name his company Paradise down there. No one cares because when it comes to paradise up here in the States, there's only one. But, uh, so I don't know what he's doing. We don't care. He doesn't have any IP rights up here. 
So are there are there twenty sacks going to be called a paradigms? Thank, 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 thank you, Jason. That's uh, something I'm writing down right now. Thank you. That's amazing for the home run, Greg. Did you want to weigh in on Rico's headline? I, I would. Thank you very much. Uh, happy Wednesday, everybody. My point is, I celebrate him. I think that this is a dirty space. It's a dirty game, and all people of color, no matter how, need to be operating heavily in this space. Uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois, and I hope that some of those uh, resources that he's creating make its way to our city, because currently white men are the only people dominating this space. So I just want to say that, you know, as we criticize uh, uh, this man of color, understand that this whole entire industry is dirty. And so uh, we can't, we can't, you know, thieves can't, there's no honor among thieves. We must get it how we are allowed. That's my what I want to add. I appreciate everyone. We definitely have to jump on this headline. So um, up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz is a cannabis educator, brand strategist, and the healthcare consultant and the founder of Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, happy hump day. And thanks for joining us, everyone. My story today comes from Mother Jones, and it's by John Woodside. The headline reads, dude, your cannabis habit has an epic carbon footprint. So the story today comes out of Canada. Last week, Canopy Giant, uh, sorry, Cannabis Giant, Canopy Growth, released an environmental, social, and governance uh, report. Uh, it's going to be abbreviated as ESG. That included data on emissions. Well, the data showed that in 2020, Canopy Growth used a lot of energy. Emissions from the company were equivalent to burning more than 65 million pounds of coal. So Canopy Growth's environmental reporting follows similar releases by other Canadian cannabis companies last year, including Rubicon Organics and Chiron Life Sciences, who Rico just mentioned. They published inaugural ESG reports in 2020. Canopy's chief advocacy officer, Hillary Black, explains, as we work towards creating sustainable long-term profitability, we're cognizant of the link between business models that create shared value for a wider stakeholder group being more likely to succeed over time versus those that operate in the singular prof pursuit of profit. The CEO of ESG Tree, Mahid Mirza, said that large asset managers or individual investors are increasingly allocating capital based on the company's ESG ratings. So the better the rating, the easier it is to attract investors. Looking at Europe, how this has unfolded shown, has shown that companies with pre-existing disclosures often perform well. And the valuations of these companies with high ESG ratings naturally go up because investors are assuming that due to new regulations, there will be some sort of reward system in place, he said. In North America, as we see regulation as imminent in the disclosure place, what's going to start happening is companies are going to be taking a proactive stance. So this means companies will want to have disclosures in place so they'll receive favorable financial ratings. And so that when climate-related disclosures are required, these companies are positioned to capitalize on that. So Canada as a nation, I guess, has been proactive on this. And last May, they launched a Sustainable Finance Action Council to integrate sustainable finance into standard industry practice. And so the climate-related financial disclosure is the council's first priority, and the council members include five big banks, pension, and insurance rating groups. So it's interesting to see these investors step in. Now we're going to move to the U.S. Research on indoor cultivation has shown there's a correlation between the emissions of a production site and the available energy sources on the power grid because it takes a lot of energy to maintain optimal growing conditions. 
Researchers from Colorado State University found over looking at over a thousand locations across the U.S., they calculated the median emissions from growing one kilogram of cannabis to be about 3,600 kilograms of CO2 equivalent emissions. Um, to put that in perspective, a kilogram of tomatoes grown in a BC greenhouse heated with natural gas emits two kilograms. So that's kind of a, a huge difference. Canopy's emissions data does represent only the emissions from operations like generator, uh, generators and company vehicles and electricity, but other emissions like trucking products to market are not included. So Canopy is slashing expenses by cutting down on these production sites. And when it shuts a bunch of them, the emissions will be will uh, decrease. Interesting to note, they grow cannabis primary in Canada, um, but they do grow a little bit in the United States. It's about 2% of their emissions is in the United States. That's in California, Colorado, Illinois. <laughs> um, and uh, so they're reporting a handful of energy conservation projects. So I'm curious, is this a harbinger of what we'll see here in the United States? Does it drive more outdoor cultivation and mean more mids are on the market? Um, I know we do see companies going in this direction. Last April, Eric Hislareta and I participated in a tasting pitting sun-grown against indoor, focused on sustainability, but it definitely started some big conversations. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I hope we have a little time to hear what, if anyone has any comments. Yeah, Liz, I just uh, learned this morning that the United States is going to host the ninth summit of the Americas in June in Los Angeles. And it is a focus on building a sustainable, resilient, and equitable future for our hemispheres. And I think the state of cannabis needs to host um, uh, some sort of event uh, during this summit. So if anybody wants to join me in that effort, please send an email to susan at stateofcannabis.org. Let's uh, let them know what the cannabis industry is doing. And again, I think uh, this came up last week. I just want to say sun grown is inherently carbon neutral. Um, indoor grows. We don't grow grapes indoors for a reason. We don't grow like any of the things that we grow that we uh, cultivate for the most part indoors. I think tomatoes for- aren't tomatoes doing pretty well indoors. It, well, at least hybrid greenhouses. Everything <laughs> grown indoors is better. Yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't really think that's the point. I think that we can get way better at at outdoor growing. I think that during the traditional market days, we grew indoors because we had to. And I don't want to be hypocritical. I raised a family like that. But sun grown now out in the open with green, greenhouses and new agricultural technologies, I do believe outdoor sun grown cannabis will rival indoor growing. And more importantly, it's the way we have to go. We have to slow down these indoor grows. These super grows in Canada need to prepare for California cannabis weed because those hundred million square feet super grows, I'm not impressed. We are at an unprecedented inflection point when it comes to climate change. And we as an industry and this green movement need to be pushing back. It's just that simple. I hear you on how indoor weed can look better and might be prettier and environmental controls allow you to pull a lot of levers with your cannabis, but those days are over. Yes, Gee, let's work on this summit Gee, together. Gee, Gee I, have a, I have a question for you. You guys have your, your solventless line, um, uh, Papa Select. Uh, do you guys use uh, outdoor weed for that line, or do you guys use indoor weed for that the line? The great news is if it's solventless, it's outdoor because only the sun grows gigantic trichomes that you can catch and make six-star hash. So, yes, we only use outdoor sun-grown in support our brothers and sisters here in the Emerald Triangle. Well, kudos, kudos to you guys for that, um, because I will say I have tried the pop-up collector uh, live rosin, and the shit is fire. 
Uh, we've got Pamela and Stephen up from the audience uh, that I would love to hear from after Nicole's comment. Oh, my comment was just that Papa selects fire. That was all. Fire. Fuego. Pamela, did you want to weigh in? Pamela, you are there. Hi. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Um, this is my intersection. Um, so I had a couple questions, if anyone knew anything. Massachusetts, when it legalized, um, had an energy efficiency standard in its um, law. I don't think it's enforced at all. Uh, one of the things that's really important in this is energy efficiency investment and in the fact that with um, strat 50 stratified or hopefully 50 stratified markets, um, that investment in the grow is going to shift a lot when we decrim or go to federal transport and, in, in fact, internationally uh, transporting and the grow really moving to where it's more beneficial environmentally and for our, you know, resources and labor and everything else. So uh, there's no incentive for efficient grow now. And one thing I would love to see is a voluntary system. I know a lot of different growers in California have done it, but a, um, you know, uh, uh, an environmental standard about your um, your carbon per pound or whatever. Thanks so much. Yeah, we are way over time. Uh, Stephen, if you could keep it brief, we need to keep moving. Definitely keep it brief. Guy, you hit it all in the head 110%. Thank you guys for letting me up on the stage. But uh, yeah, no, I've seen this carbon footprint uh, model coming along really quick. We've been working towards it as on in every industry to reduce the carbon footprint. I've been preaching indoor grows are the biggest carbon footprint. And yes, outdoor grows are neutral. Uh, Guy, thank you very much for being a stand-up fellow. And I can't wait to try your hash, man. That shit's fire, Stephen. Go cop some. I'm on it. I'm on it. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So up next, he's known in certain circles as Kaiser Brose. And if there's two more things that this conservative OG is also well known for, it's smoking the greatest weed in the world, identifying Booth. He's bi-coastal, international, private jet hopping, deal making. And you can catch him out in Mar-a-Lago when he's not freezing his ass off out here in West Hollywood. Jason Beck, what you got for us today, my man? Oh, good morning, Rico. Thank you so much for the introduction. Hope everyone's having a fabulous week. And today, my story is about Green Street. And here's what to expect at the cannabis industry incubator, Green Street and restaurant Gusto Green. The highly anticipated cannabis industry incubator, Green Street is now open. It's a unique weed-centric building filled with offices for cannabis entrepreneurs, art galleries, consumption-friendly event spaces, and a ground floor restaurant named Gusto Green. Like many in-person businesses, Gusto or Green Street's road to opening its doors has been filled with challenges due to the pandemic. Before COVID, everything was rented out. All the office spaces were taken, then COVID hit and all the people left. So now we're now we're feeding people back in again, says Rama Mayo, one of the founders here at Green Street. Today, I feel like we're going to be sure, sure uh, to, to get there. I still feel like I'm riding the bicycle in Tour de France going up the hill and it's super slow. It's it's up there. I see it, says Rama. Uh, Green, Green Street is, is headquartered um, in the Green Street Agency, founded in 2013 by Rama Mayo and Josh Shelton and investor Gary Vanderchuk, uh, very better known as Gary V, joined the company in 2017. And Green Street 
Street Agency has has won AdCan Awards twice for Agency of the Year and worked for clients in the cannabis space. One of the biggest draws of the space is the potential for creative collaboration and networking. People are meeting each other, says Mayo. It's working. I always look at it like I'm doing an apartment building, but it's not really. It's an apartment building if all the tenants were best friends, where people get together, create their own events, and collaborate. The goal is not to just fill the building, but to fill fill the building with companies like 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 competitors, uh, frenemies, friends, people who want to get together as a community. It's such a good place to meet people in cannabis. It's the perfect place for networking, says Jamie Nakur, aka Weavers, uh, founder of the artist of the artist brand that that rolls uh, smokable art. One of the tenants in the newly redesigned space. Green Street's a home for cannabis pioneers, a safe space for the community to collaborate, says Jamie, uh, co-founder of. Oh, also, uh, Jamie Feister, co-founder of the cannabis brand Country Cannabis Co. Our showroom allows us to connect with all of our retail accounts, press, and, and partners in a single place. It's one of the few places where folks can learn about our brand and sample our products all at the same time. The rooftop floor of Green Street is being built out with an opening Mayo expects sometime in the summer. The rooftop plans to include a stage, full bar, kitchen with with blueprints laying out plenty of airy seating, high stools, and large stone ovens. The penthouse floor is a gallery um, for cannabis events in the space called Alta. And Alta can accommodate up to 300 guests in Green Street's 4th Street uh, floor. Uh, on the fourth floor functions as an event space as well. Third and fifth floor are reserved for office spaces meant exclusively for cannabis entrepreneurs and even myself. I have an office space here on the fifth floor and I'm actually broadcasting live from Green Street as we as we speak today. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, up next, we have Minika Mahajan. Minika is a pot-smoking PhD, political economist, and the founder of Mahajan Consulting. What do you have for us today, Minika? Good morning, Nicole. Thank you so much. Uh, my story today comes from Louisiana, where a candidate for the U.S. Senate is going big on cannabis policy issues in his campaign. And I'm covering an article from NBC News with the headline, Louisiana Senate Candidate Gary Chambers smokes marijuana blunt in new ad campaign. But this story has been all over the place on Fox News, CNN, The Washington Post, USA Today, The Hill, Rolling Stone. It has uh, definitely gotten a lot of attention. So here's what happened. Yesterday, Democratic Louisiana Senate candidate Gary Chambers released a campaign ad, and it's a video of him lighting a beautiful blunt and advocating for cannabis legalization. This was his first campaign ad, and it's titled 37 Seconds. Susan, could you please roll the clip? Yes, I can. Thank you. Every 37 seconds, someone is arrested for possession of marijuana. Since 2010, state and local police have arrested an estimated 7.3 million Americans for violating marijuana laws, over half of all drug arrests. Black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana laws than white people. States waste $3.7 billion enforcing marijuana laws every year. Most of the people police are arresting aren't dealers, but rather people with small amounts of pot, just like me. 
I'm Gary Chambers, and I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. I love this. This is fire. So he's, for anyone, since this is an audio-only format, he is sitting in a leather chair in a field, and he lights up this fat blunt, and then he's talking about um, these, the different facets of cannabis legalization. So um, it's a pretty good ad. Uh, definitely check it out. I think it's linked in the in the clip. So... Uh, Mr. Chambers, did you inhale? Uh, yes, it appears you did. And in doing so on camera and in a campaign ad for the United States Congress, uh, Gary Chambers is putting front and center what most candidates try to dodge, which is the question of whether or not they've used cannabis. This is exciting and headline grabbing, but it's more than that. This story is part of a bigger trend where public figures are taking a taboo and leaning into it as a way to challenge stigma. Prior cannabis use is no longer the political liability that it used to be. Now candidates can admit prior use and many voters simply shrug. But this ad takes it to the next level. It's believed to be the first ad for a Senate race that features a cannabis smoking candidate. And as for the race itself, Chambers is challenging incumbent Republican Senator John Kennedy, who was first elected in 2016, and another Democrat, Luke Mixon, has also declared intent to run. Louisiana's governor, John Bell Edwards, is a Democrat, but the state leans Republican. Kennedy won his seat by 21 points, and Trump won the state by 25 points in 2020. So that's what I've got. I think we have some correspondents who would love to weigh in on this. So this is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I love this ad, and I'm a big fan of uh, Gary Chambers. Um, but I do think that uh, his opponent that he's running against will probably ask him questions like where the fuck did you get that weed from they might seize upon that i i love this ad too and i just wish he was running as a republican does it matter 100 percent, it matters why because he's he's in, all- he's in a republican state and and the goal of an election is to win for his electability okay thanks jason so are you saying that, you're saying that people who run as republicans or democrats it doesn't matter what their beliefs are just as long as they they, they go and they run to win it doesn't matter you know else. with a, you know with elections rico it's nothing more than a popularity contest and if you want to herd all the cats you have to have to build a fence you know I, I think that mindset is what's led us to where we are and i've been chewing on this for a while so like jason i hear what you're saying because i've said it many times but i think one thing that is going to start to change in american politics is a level of authenticity if you're not authentic even with your shit you're going to be like held and roasted and and you will be held accountable at this point because even at biden is not no one is beyond reprieve so if gary chambers wants to authentically be himself and run as a black man on national tv smoking a motherfucking joint god bless him he has made history and thank you because I think that shit can win. Um, Let me just say real quick, um, I've been following Gary Chambers for a while. You got to go on his Instagram and watch some of the things. He he confronts some of these politicians that aren't working for the people, and I just love the guy, and I think everybody that goes to this room should definitely try to support him because what he's doing is on the right side of everything. So thank you. Agreed. Thank you, Ted, for that comment. I think that... Uh, there's a lot more to learn about him before we even start talking about electability. And he does have a really interesting Instagram page and his positions. Check out his campaign page. I think this guy is legit and really fighting for a courageous stance in politics. Hey, Governor, you get the last word. We need to uh, keep moving. Sure. I just wanted to say as a candidate that is 
ran for governor and openly <laughs> um, let people know that I consume marijuana. I support him and hope that the people out there seeing his ad and hearing about him will support his campaign as well. His ad would have looked better if he would have been smoking a joint instead of smoking a uh, backwood. I know, right? Man, we're from the South, man. We smoke blunts. Can I just say, I think this is precedent setting. I mean, have we ever seen anyone else do this? This is really exciting. Nope, this is a setting. It's huge for national media and television and the history of what that can create when you have that kind of recognition and representation. We're seeing that representation on the screen matters. This is huge and historic. Yes, from a television perspective, absolutely. Yeah, we're out of time for that one. And Ted has talked. Uh-huh. Up next, I believe, <laughs> I believe it was Method Man and Red Man who once said, if you look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's actually Christopher Smith, our very own Clark Kent here at State of Cannabis News Hour. He's also the uh, he's also from the American Cannabis Report and um, one of my favorite delivery operators here on our team. What you got for us today, Christopher Smith? Thank you. Thank you, Rico. You've outdone yourself, dopest dad. And thank you, Susan. Uh, My headline today is from Marijuana Moment. A top federal drug official says train has left the station on psychedelics as reform movement spreads. So the quote is uh, at a psychedelics workshop co-hosted by the National Institute of Mental Health. Last week, National Institute of Drug Abuse Director Dr. Nora Volkow said people are going to keep using substances such as psilocybin, especially Especially as the reform movement expands and there's increased attention being drawn to the potential therapeutic benefits, and so researchers and regulators will need to keep up. So not to sound redundant, but this is one trippy statement about mushrooms, not because the content is strange, but because who said it? Uh, Dr. Volkow is one of the top docs in the systematic superstructure of war on drugs uh, internationally, and unfortunately for us, she's really a superstar in her field. She's written 680 peer-reviewed papers. In college, she was named the best medical student of her generation, and Time Magazine's called her one of the top 100 people who shape our world. So as a medical professional, she has few peers, and as a staunch adversary against cannabis, up until recently, she was dangerous to all of us, which is why when Dr. Volkow said, if you legalize cannabis, the children will get it, in paper after paper, speech after speech, everyone listened. But something really interesting has been happening, as we've reported here on the State of Cannabis News Hour many times. All the legit reporting from agencies in states and the federal government are finding that after legalization, kids find it harder to get cannabis than before, just like we said. And kids are using less cannabis than before, just like we said. And college kids are now choosing cannabis over alcohol, which she acknowledges is a healthier choice. So reefer madness was wrong, and we're really winning the day here. And what's amazing is that Dr. Volkow is calling on other federal government agencies to read the writing on the wall and get their shit together. Here's a collection of headlines for Marijuana Moment for about the, during the last year. Uh, see, see if you can see what's common here. Uh, top federal drug official admits legalizers were right about teen marijuana use and touts psychological uh, psychedelics therapeutic potential. 
Top federal drug official says criminalization creates stigma and harms health of consumers. Top federal drug official discusses rise in psychedelics use and the need to study marijuana from dispensaries. So that's how that movement started. And top federal drug official says we don't need more research to show criminalization's racist impact. The top federal drug official is on a rampage for sane policies about cannabis and psilocybin. And she freely admits that the way that the people People are way ahead of the government and the people cannot be stopped. She poked a sharp stick in the eye of the DEA and the Senate by saying the director separately told, uh, when she said, the director separately told Marijuana Moment on Friday in an emailed statement directly that part of the challenge for the agency and researchers is that psychedelics are strictly prohibited as Schedule One drugs. Researchers must extend obtain a Schedule One registration, which unlike Schedule Two substances, and she lists fentanyl, methamphetamine, and cocaine, they are administratively challenging and time-consuming and difficult to work with. So she says the train has left the station. People are going to use it whether the FDA approves or not. Let's learn from history. Let's use what we've learned from the marijuana experience. Amazing. This coming from her. Hallelujah. Dr. Volka is finally singing our song. Love to hear what you think about that. I think that uh, because of the the pandemic uh, and just life in general on this planet, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from from using um, uh, psilocybin, particularly, and other psychedelics. Um, so I, I think I think it's a really great thing. Yay! Let's go. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, Susan. I was blessed to be in Austin with uh, at a psychedelic conference with. Some colleagues, and I do think that uh, we can learn from the cannabis industry. I think that cannabis businesses who start to look to be the stewards of mycology, shout out to Cookies for their initial mycology-based tinctures, adaptogens, so there's more to mycology than just psilocybin. But when we talk about psilocybin specifically, I think that we need to usher in a new wave of plant medicine with cannabis being over-the-counter. I think psilocybin will be by prescription. You should have some more instruction on your psilocybin products and understand your dosing. And then I think other plant-based medicines, your ayahuascas, your DMTs and such, will be therapeutics that need to be administered by a provider, you know, a guided practitioner. Um, and that's our new wave of plant-based medicine. And I think we need to look at it like that as a plant-based medicine revolution. Eric Kislareda had done the story on um, 2022 being the year of the entheogen. And seeing that a top federal drug official is, is saying this, I think that's really encouraging and exciting for plant medicine as a whole. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that headline. That was uh Really, I think that we're going to be seeing so much more of this um, evolving over the next few months. Uh, Nicole, Nicole, can they? Can there be like a hybrid, like decriminalization on a personal level, but uh, when it comes to a commercial level, have it regulated? I mean, that's kind of how we did uh, try to do cannabis, right? Like we were like, hey, you can have it, you can grow it, you can do this, but if you want to sell it, you have to follow these very specific rules. Um, so, I mean, Tiggy's point on being able to to be stewards of this industry, I think it's good. Um, I used to argue quite vigorously with Jason Beck a couple years ago in regards to Jason was like, don't fucking try to talk about mushrooms. You're going to mess up all of the things that we're doing for cannabis. And for a second, I halfway believed him. But then um, as we've watched this evolution, I really do think that he was wrong in the fact that I think entheogens are actually going to be the thing that fucking skyrockets and pushes cannabis into a full deschedule because we're watching this evolution happen right in front of our eyes and the the awakening is real. It's, yeah. it's 
I was wrong too. I, I thought the same way that Jason did, but I want to be able to use psilocybin uh, however I want to, but I don't, you know, I don't want to have to go into a therapy session, but I see how, I see how that makes sense. But it's sense. so necessary when you think about people utilizing it for the first time, you know, it's not this, like you think about cannabis and it's like, yeah, I don't really worry about somebody smoking too much and it going bad um, in the same way that I would be really more concerned. Like this is like edibles to like the hundredth power. You know what I mean? Like we'd be very conscientious when we tell somebody to eat an edible, right? Like don't go take a thousand milligrams because it's going to have, you're going to have a bad time. That same conversation needs to be had very, very candidly and very real. And when we're starting to talk about medical, um, you know, things that interactions with other drugs and things like that, it's really important for us when we're getting on to a full-blown psychedelic like this to be very conscious when we're bringing people to the light with this product. I mean, I, I, it's, it's an airline. I just want to say for the record that I was not wrong. Uh, you were wrong. Anyways, up next we have... Brandon Dorsky. Brandon Dorsky is cannabis's favorite bearded lawyer, stuck somewhere between vibes and the judicial system. A tightrope walk that he walks quite well. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Thanks for having me. Uh, today, my headline is Feds, California Sheriff, Illegally Seizing Cannabis Cash, Company Says. While Chris is talking about someone promoting sane policies, I'm reporting on the other end of the spectrum where federal agencies and law enforcement officers are ignoring legal trends and federal guidance on tolerating state legal cannabis business operation. Armored transportation company Imperial Logistics LLC and preferred industry cash mule filed a civil rights suit against the federal government and a California sheriff on the basis the officers are running an illegal shakedown where they unlawfully search the vehicles and seize cash proceeds from cannabis business operators using Imperial to transport their cash under the guise of civil forfeiture. The suit was filed in California federal court, arguing that San Bernardino County Sheriff should not be targeting their business operating legally in the state. The County Sheriff Shannon D. Dickus, the DOJ, Attorney General Merrick Garland, the FBI, the DEA, and acting directors and assistant directors and administrators were all named in the suit. Imperial claimed the DOJ is coordinating an effort across multiple states to target them and stop Imperial vehicles for, for searches as they transport cash from state legal cannabis businesses to financial institutions. The company does not transport any cannabis. Imperial argued the federal government should also not be targeting a business providing services to state legal medical cannabis operators because the DOJ is, quote, forbidden from spending federal funds to do so under the appropriations rider known as the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment. The suit argues that the San Bernardino County Sheriff is deliberately targeting Imperial in an effort to reap the cash as their reward through civil asset forfeiture. In the last eight months alone, Imperial vehicles have been stopped and searched five times, with three stops ending in a seizure of cash. Three stops have occurred in the last eight weeks in San Bernardino alone. No traffic citations were issued to the Imperial driver from the stops, but 60% of the time, the cash is all taken. On November 16th, $700,000 was boosted, along with the driver's business and business and personal cell phones. On January 6th of this year, Imperial was stopped in San Bernardino, but the driver only had rolls of coins from a vendor. Those were not seized. Uh, in the stop, the officer told the Imperial driver that the frequent stops were, quote, political. 
The company's complaint also argues that targeting Imperial vehicles for stop searches and seizures for political reasons is an improper government motive for enforcement that exceeds the sheriff's statutory authority and violates Imperial's constitutional rights. Imperial is really paying the price as they have to reimburse or are choosing to reimburse their clients for the seized cash. Um, Imperial's filing is, seeks to block these defendants from these unreasonable stops, searches, or seizures uh, or the and searching the vehicles on the basis that the contents is actual or suspected presence of cash earned by state legal cannabis dispensaries without reasonable suspicion or probable cause. As a result of the targeting, Imperial has actually suspended their operations in San Bernardino and completely stopped operations in Kansas where they were transporting cash from Missouri uh, to financial institutions. Um, Unfortunately for Imperial, their initial temporary restraining order request was denied. So this latest suit is the response to that denial. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Cops need to get out of politics. Oh, my God. This is obviously something that's been going on in the legacy market for a long time with raids and different things. But it's really unfortunate to see it continuing on. And I know we've seen recently in the news, especially in Maine and some other places where law enforcement were part of like big rings like this. So hopefully as the legal market moves forward, we'll be able to expose some of this. Like if we have to do business, then everyone has to do business on the books. I mean, if, if you're... State state legal business cash can be seized by the actual law officers in the state. What incentives, like, that's another disincentive for operators to operate a legal business. Your cash is getting taken anyway. And what do they do with that cash? Where does it go? We actually have, um, I, I run a distribution facility Southern California, and we have a hard rule when it comes to how close we get to the border. Um, two different facilities that we work with locally have had all of their materials seized by the customs officials that are able to come within uh, 10 miles of the border. So um, they're like spotting these vehicles, realizing what's happening, and literally just coming, taking everything, and not leaving any sort of uh, receipt or anything of the seize. What, one one of my uh, distribution vehicles was uh, seized by uh, by Border Patrol on the on on the southern border, and they took all the and all the cash and kept the vehicle for a while and it took us about eight months to get it back. Kimo, you've got the last word. Yeah, no, I was going to say this is just business as usual when you have law enforcement that in, uh, enforce laws based on their own pet peeves. Um, there's two uh, two law enforcement officials up here in Mendocino County currently under investigation for robbing legal uh, business operators and traditional operators. I've always looked at it as just almost uh, not necessarily as a cost of doing business, but as a occupational hazard. That is not okay. Let's keep smoking the news. So he's no he's a known and known and respected by industry peers as an outspoken defender of the culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. He's hands down one of my favorite OGs in the game. The co-founder and president of Pop Up and Barkley, and our next correspondent can definitely teach everybody a thing or two about going from legacy to legal and not losing your soul in the process. Guy Rocourt, what you got for us this morning, my brother? Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, my article today comes from uh, ABC 10 Sacramento. Sacramento lawmakers voting on $5.8 million grant to help can- cannabis legal market. On December 24th, the Office of Cannabis Management approved a five, greenlit a $5.8 million grant but the city has yet to accept it. For some reason, the city council has to vote on getting money. This money has been earmarked as part of the core reinvestment 
Equity Program or Cannabis Opportunity Reinvestment Equity Program or CORE and is designed to help grease the wheels for all of us to get easier licensing. The funds come at a time when about 82% of state licenses are still held as provisional licenses. And as of April 2021, according to the governor's offices, there were more unlicensed retailers working in the state than licensed distributors. So this this whole this money is designed so that prospective cannabis retailers, especially with smaller financial backing, often small businesses of color, which struggle to comply with the list of documents, permits, plans, and licenses, anywhere between sixteen thousand six hundred and forty dollars and thirty three thousand six hundred and ten dollars in fees, will also have to be taken before a retailer can open their doors uh, for to commercial sale. Sacramento's cannabis program, the voters obviously voted in 2016 for 60, Proposition 64. Baked in that was this notion of social equity in the form of the core program established in 2018 to fight and, and help people that have been marginalized. And in this article, if you guys decide to read it, they tell you some of the requirements in terms of where you were living, what zip codes you were living, and other things that would make you one of the people disaffected by the uh, war on drugs. Another stat here in the article is black and Hispanic residents were arrested at a camp for cannabis at a disproportionate rate compared to white residents, making up about 72% of arrests and only accounting for about 42% of the population. This is from 20 2010 uh, arrest records, right? So participate, you know, and then it goes into the eligibility. So the crux of this article is here we have money that's earmarked to help social equity applicants and provide funding to establish programs to make it easier to navigate the licensing scheme that California has deployed. And for some reason, the city council has been sitting on it since last year. It's now going on on a month. And apparently it was approved uh, yesterday evening when this article came out. Uh, But kudos to, I guess, Sacramento for voting it in, but kudos to the state for at least putting some money where their mouth is when it relates to social equity. I think there's so much more that we can do. Candidly, I think that there should be some weighted scales. It's not fair when billionaire monies come in and have the right law firms and grease their wheels through Sacramento. Meanwhile, folks who have been in jail, have been struggling and putting it down forever, have to really work hard to get a license. That's just my personal opinion on it. This is Guy Roadcourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. wonder how far that money will go, considering it, it costs over a million dollars to get a retail establishment up and running. Long Beach just took their four million yesterday. It's um everyone's divvying it out right now. There's uh, Long Beach took some, San Diego took some. Um, I, I'm sure LA is going to get a decent amount. Um, everyone's it seems like getting somewhere between four and six. Uh, Sacramento got what five point? You said what was it five point eight? Ski? Yeah. Yeah, 5.8. All right. Well, I want to get my story in, so I'm going to keep it moving. My story comes from the Ashbury Park Press, and the headline is, New Jersey legal weed, home grow is a no-go, but advocates push to change that. I say no-go on any legislation that doesn't include home grow. That is a line in the sand. Uh, New Jersey is unlikely to allow its marijuana users or medical cannabis patients to grow their own cannabis plants at home, the new president of the state Senate said this month, State Senate uh, Nick Sakura. 
Turi, a Democrat, was the main proponent of New Jersey's cannabis legalization in the state Senate and was elected by his colleagues as the body's president this year. But speaking to a virtual webinar of cannabis industry entrepreneurs and experts, he said that he did not see homegrown ha- home grow happening right now, repeated a common refrain that allowing home grow would only contribute to the black market, yes, he said black market, and hold back the legal industry from taking off. So I just wanted y'all to hear this in his own words. And I have shared uh, the notion of addressing this. So legislature or CRC, the issue of home grow, legislature or CRC. I can tell you, I don't see happening at any time. I do see that it will happen at some point in time. I don't doubt that. I'm not against marijuana being grown at home and utilized for medical purposes and maybe even just recreational purposes. But we've got to let this industry kind of get off the not even off the ground yet. And if we if we flood this market with tons of additional, uh, you know, a product and that's what happens i know people think it's going to be used for personal use only but i just it doesn't happen that way the anecdotal evidence in colorado and many other places is that there's a proliferation of home grow that just floods the adult market and in other markets where it's not illegal it gets shipped into nebraska and other places, uh that they don't have a regulated market and it's not regulated so it can be tainted with other stuff and that's not what we want to see uh, so is home grow the problem? I say no. Hell no. And anyone that lobbies against uh, home grow is just labeled as a protectionist. And an asshole. Bullshit. It's bullshit. There's no way. And an asshole. Right. Now, I was going to say, pushing back against homegrown is like that clear indication of cannabis shame. It shows a lack of knowledge. We're allowed to grow our own tomatoes and we don't. The notion that people wanting to grow their own medicine and, 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 and commune with the plant by growing one for their own would contribute to some illicit sales is just inaccurate. Yeah, flood this guy with emails. Uh, We are at time. Uh, That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or your YouTube channel. I'm sorry, I got to mute you, Jason. Uh, A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico.